0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, British Parliament has been prorogued. What does that mean for Brexit? Can we keep up? Bianca Andrescu became the first woman to win the U.S. Open from Canada. She's only 19. What does the future hold? And music journalist Alan Cross joins us to tell us how a Toronto music festival helped break up the Beatles. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. As of closing business hours today, British Parliament prorogued. What does that mean moving forward as um, the UK heads towards an October 31st uh, Brexit exit? Uh, obviously, Boris Johnson willing to go without a deal, uh, not necessarily the rest of the country feeling that way to talk about all of this decoded. Give us an update. Uh, Adam Pankratz is, uh, Pankratz is with us, adjunct professor, Sodder School of Business, University of British Columbia, and is with us now. Adam, thank you for the time. Much appreciated.
1: My pleasure, Scott. Uh, last time we spoke, I thought this whole thing would have been over by now. But it's uh, certainly nice to talk with you again.
0: Well, you know, uh, it's it sort of are we at a tipping point here? I mean, at the end of the day, uh, uh, we we see a lot of people stepping towards a cliff. But is it going to take one more shove? Is is it just an election that needs to be uh, that needs to be called here to, to undo this mess? I mean, what other options are there?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, an election certainly would help, although if it comes back in the same minority parliament that they've got again, that may or may not be the case. Um, you know, the options going forward at the moment are, are not great. Um, there's the election, you noted, but uh, the Labour Party has not yet been willing to vote for that until the government uh, confirms that they will either strike a deal before October 19th or if they get to that point and have not, then request the extension, at which point Labour says they would then uh, support an election.
0: Okay, let's start um, with that. Uh, what what are the chances of the UK getting an extension on all of this, considering we remember what happened during the last extension?
1: If the UK asks for it, I would say the chances are all but certain, um, despite what France is saying, that right. they won't do it unless it's clear that... The UK is serious about it. The reality is nobody wants a Um, no-deal. The EU really even still doesn't want the UK to leave the European Union. So despite all the bluster, uh, if an extension were requested it would be extremely unlikely right. that uh, we would not have that happen until the 31st of January.
0: What is Boris Johnson's motives for trying to force a no-deal Brexit? Like, he's, you know, he, he's pushing forward very hard no matter what happens. If we don't get this done by October 31st, we're out. Um, what hand is he trying to force there, considering most have said if that happens, it would be a disaster?
1: Well, it would be an economic uh, cataclysm for the UK. Um, what is he trying to do? I, I think Boris Johnson uh, really views this as an opportunity um, to do something in the vision of his hero, Winston Churchill, where he's going to make a massive stand, uh, put, bring Britain back. To uh, the greatness that it uh, has seen in the past, and in some senses, we hear echoes here of Donald Trump. I, I shy away a little bit from that um, because Boris Johnson is a lot of things. Uh, he's not Donald Trump, yeah. at least not yet. Um, but he really wants this sort of loud and
0: boisterous. Can't be the only common denominator here.
1: <laughs> exactly yeah. right. Um, he, he's pushing this, you know, you know, British Empire. We we can do this alone, we can strike out global Britain. It's not really clear what all of that means, necessarily, but uh, he's, he's tap, trying to tap into um, this British feeling that, you know, we, we saved Europe in World War II, we can do it again, uh, we can do this on our own, we don't need Europe. Um, that's not the reality anymore today. But, but that's, that seems to be what he's trying to, trying to get at, and he thinks if he can do it, then he's going to be uh, a hero of a U.K. prime minister, which if he did it successfully, uh, I agree with him. He, he probably would be viewed in, in that vein. Um, but reality is certainly stacked very hard against him. So uh,
0: is he convinced that he can get some sort of a better deal out of the EU while leaving? Even though Theresa May has been up and down that road a million times?
1: He seems convinced by it. I think he's trying to play, or he's trying to play a game of chicken with the EU uh, to see whether or not they will save. And,
0: and that's and then, my point. That's my point about bringing up the whole. Let's just take it out October thirty first, no matter what. We're just, you know, whatever happens. If we can't get a deal done, we're out. Is, is that is that the reason for these these tactics?
1: That that is how I view it. I, I think he he thinks the EU wants the UK to leave less with a no deal than even the UK does. Um, it's optimistic thinking, in my opinion. I think at, at some point, the EU here is just going to say, well, then fine. Um, you know, you were never fully committed. You were in the EU for convenience, not by conviction. And if you really want out, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to kick you out or we're, or, or we're not going to grant an extension, right? And certainly Emmanuel Macron of France has been the, the largest proponent of saying, you know, enough's enough. So I, I view it as a negotiating tactic. Um, he, he he you know has changed that around though so many times there's no consistency here you know he said it was a million to one they'd leave with no deal then recently he said it's no 50 50 uh, now he said he'd rather die in a ditch than leave uh, right. after the 31st yeah. <laughs> of October so
0: so uh, really, at the end of the day, this is, it, it appears from where I sit, an election is the only way to resolve this because they're certainly not going to bang out any sort of new deal between now and October 31, are they?
1: Well, I think, bizarrely, the way things have gone on with the prorogation, the government has tightened their timetable in Parliament and made their own Lives much more difficult, which is certainly not the intention.
0: So, who will right? make the concessions, the UK or the EU?
1: Um, it's going to be, I don't know if we can say it's one side or the other is making concessions, but it's right. about the Irish backstop. Right, yeah. It, it's about yeah. figuring out how do we avoid the hard, the no hard border in Ireland uh, and yet find a way to not keep the United States. Kingdom in the customs union. And there are options there. You know, the EU said that, well, we would never make the type of deal we made with Switzerland where there were special deals for certain types of industries. And that was unique to Switzerland because Switzerland, you know, was early days in the EU and that was the center of the continent. And we couldn't have a situation where we just had this island that had nothing to do with the rest of Central Europe. Um, So That now has started to, in private conversations at least, be talked about. Um, Is it going to become a reality? The timeline, again, before October 31st seems extremely tight.
0: Does anybody know what this border would even look like moving
1: forward? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, the, 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 we, we want it to um, to stay open. I mean, that, that's really the issue yeah. uh, for the EU to mm-hmm. keep, to keep Ireland um, uh, with with access to the United Kingdom, but also more importantly to keep and not uh, jeopardize the Good Sunday Agreement, which was, uh, which was a source of so many of the troubles in Northern Ireland and Ireland uh, during the 1990s. So we, we don't want, th- there's a real danger there um, and, and danger of you know, potentially violence if, if this thing turns back into a hard border and divisions reoccur. So what, about, is- uh,
0: what, what about a soft border for the citizens and a hard border for trade? Is that possible? So the citizens can come and go as they normally would. It's a different when you're when you're trading. Does there have to be a, a you know a gate per se?
1: I think I think at this point all options are on the table, and certainly freedom of movement is something that the UK has insisted upon, whether or not it's just in Northern Ireland or the UK in general. That absolutely the rights of EU citizens living in uh, the UK have to be protected, as well as the rights of UK citizens living in the EU. And you know that's a that's a huge deal. And and I. Regardless, I was in London in April, and I was standing on a platform, and this is anecdotal, but I think it just speaks to, you know, what, what London is. I, I was waiting for the, the tube to come by, and I heard French, German, Spanish, Russian, Middle Eastern languages. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear any English at this tube stop in basically the central central London. And I thought, you know, it doesn't matter what politicians want to put forward as their reality the reality of England and the mm. UK and the EU is that it's so integrated already. Yeah. Um, even you know, a quote-unquote "no deal" is going to end up <laughs> at some type of a deal because you can't ignore the reality on the ground of the millions of EU citizens that are living. In, uh, in the UK and the millions of UK citizens who are living in the EU.
0: You also have to wonder, too, if once they finally do this, to get this resolved in some way, and in some way the UK is out of the EU, you have to wonder how long it's going to be before they start plans and negotiations to get back in in another generation. Um, it's bizarre. And you often wonder, and, and I've asked various people this, is it easier to come up with a new EU than it is to try to come up with a Brexit deal.
1: Well, I think you're onto something there, absolutely. You know, a lot more, Boris Boris Johnson and... and,
0: Like, it's impossible to break up, so let's figure out what the problems are and make it work better.
1: Well, absolutely, and and, and there's a lesson there. I mean, there's two ways to go. I think, you know, no deal is not the end, is the first thing to say. No deal would be a beginning of what now is the future relationship. It, it's been presented as an end, but it's not an end. It's okay, it's no deal, but now what is it going to become?
0: Then all, I mean, all of a sudden after that, you start negotiating. It just continues on.
1: A- absolutely, yeah. it does. And, and I think your other point, um, what I took from what you said, uh, is well taken as well, that you know, the EU has a lot of other problems other than Brexit. Uh, and they're able or they are ignoring them right now because Brexit is taking up all the oxygen. You know, Italy is a massive problem for the EU currently. Yeah. And, and it's very easy right now for the EU to kind of say, oh, well, Britain is the problem and, and we've got to fix this. Well, yes, they're the most immediate problem. But the EU has some other structural and, uh, basic issues on the continent that it's going to really have to address if we're going to see the EU be successful for, you know, another, a uh, number of decades. Well, when,
0: they're, they're, when this discussion first started, uh, many were worried because Scotland was talking about it. That gee, you know, maybe we we want to stay in the EU, and to heck with with whatever the UK wants. And, and then there were thoughts: well, maybe others want to get out of the EU. But at the beginning of all this, it seemed that the EU was quite tight, and that's not necessarily. Uh, the direction that they were going in. But as you bring up uh, there, there are other issues there and perhaps that's what needs addressing as opposed to trying to do all these deals with people that want to leave.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the big issue, what it often comes down to here is, is the, the notion that you, you can have integrated trade borders um, or full national sovereignty, but you can't really have both. And, um, and that's a problem, you know, uh, that and, and and it's a problem, or it's an it, it's an issue that that politicians are are very savvy to stir up. Uh, we see it a lot in Hungary uh, currently with Viktor Orban. Um, we're seeing it in Poland, um, and in in other areas, even in countries that are strongly committed to the European Union, like France, um, Marine Le Pen is is really riled up the the French nationalism. And these are these are not good things, right? But they, they come as a result of intransigence on the part of the uh, EU in terms of being such a monolithic bureaucracy. And, uh, and that uh, and, and allowing more flexibility within that structure is certainly something that, that I think uh, they would be well advised to look at. So now we're,
0: uh, by the end of uh, day, the uh, day uh, British government is prorogued. What happens in the days, weeks to come as as October 31st approaches? And we also know now that uh, John Burkow, uh the Speaker, has stepped down. What's, what's happening in the next days, weeks?
1: Well, Parliament is suspended until the 14th. Um, so hopefully in that time from my point of view we would see that the government put forward serious proposals particularly on the backstop to the eu and uh, and get a deal before the 19th um that really is the easiest way out of this is a deal I mean, We five the the uk finds a deal with the european union if that does not happen and the and boris johnson ultimately does not break the law like he has been threatening to do and does request an extension Before the 19th, as he is now required to do by law, once that happens, then Labour has said they will back an election. So if by the October the 19th we don't have a deal and the extension has been requested, I think you will then see the UK uh, going into an election likely in November.
0: And the backstop still the biggest issue.
1: There are a lot of issues, but the backstop really is is a sticking point, right? right? Because that's the that's that's the issue of keeping the EU locked in the or the UK locked in the EU permanently or having a hard border. And those are both at the moment at least non starters for, for both sides.
0: Is there a solution there?
1: Again, uh, maybe if if they can find some type of a Switzerland type solution that they that they found, but no reality is going to change the fact that the UK has a land border with Ireland, yeah, and <laughs> that yeah. is very, very difficult to solve, along with the domestic political issues of the Good Friday Agreement and uh, and the Northern Irish Troubles, which which could affect the EU uh, very drastically.
0: Once an election is called, can you see a referendum being a part of this campaign?
1: If Labour were to win the election, I could see that, or if it were a Labour one supported by the Liberal Democrats, who they've been calling for a referendum for a long, long time now then I can see that, see that happening. If the Conservatives come back with a minority, which despite everything that's happened, the polls still indicate that the Conservatives are the preferred, uh, the preferred party. Not by much, but mm-hmm. um, you know it still, it still could come back similar to the way it looks right now. But if Labour were to uh, win and uh, had a minority, say, supported by the Liberal Democrats, right. then I certainly could see that. Uh,
0: but you don't see the Conservatives calling a referendum.
1: Very difficult unless they get rid of Boris Johnson and come back with uh, someone else who wow. ultimately decides <laughs> that this is the only way to do this as a referendum, but much, much more difficult if the conservatives win. How do you
0: think the EU is viewing this?
1: In the sense that uh,
0: are, are do they feel they have an advantage here or are they worried that this could all go south and weaken the EU? Uh,
1: <laughs> I think it's a combination of uh, exasperation and sadness. Uh, honestly, uh, you know they, they've, they've had enough, and, and despite the continent and the, the long history that they've had, well, England, you know, is not really with us, and they're kind of an adversary, but they're kind of an ally historically uh, for the UK. Let, let's not mince words. For the UK to leave the European Union is a disaster. It is a catastrophe for the, for, the, for the European Union. And they cannot permit this to go down uh, in a way that is, you know, ultimately beneficial, because then who else is going to stay in the European Union? They would just say, well, England, you know, you do, the UK did it on their own. We're going to do it on our own as well. Um, so and, is and there I, an
0: appetite within the EU to try to fix the bigger problem here?
1: You mean the bigger problem of the, of the frustration? Uh, yeah, and just
0: and managing, as we talked about before, managing a new EU as opposed to trying to managing a Brexit.
1: I think on some sides there probably are. Um, you know, France, or rather Germany um, and, and, and Holland have certainly seemed to be ones that are more willing and, and have always been more supportive and have sort of used the UK within the European Union.
0: But Boris Johnson somewhere. has no interest in doing that, though, does he? He has no interest in trying, hey, let's build a new European Union here.
1: Uh, no, that's, yeah. not his, yeah. that's not his uh, yeah. MO at the moment right. at all.
0: Uh, could he end up
1: doing that indirectly? Bringing more cohesion to the European Union? Yeah. Uh, possibly. I think that would be uh, very temporary. I, I mentioned the uh, Italy, um, earlier, yeah. Hungary, Poland, um, the nationalistic tendencies there. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, countries like uh, Hungary, if they were doing the type of things they're doing now and they were not in the European Union, they would never have been allowed into the European Union to start with mm. because these are very anti-democratic measures that uh, mm. that um, the, the governments are taking. So the European Union has serious issues there. I think, yes, it's maybe united front against sort of a, a common frustration. I would not say enemy at all, a common frustration uh, with the UK. But uh, whether that will last, I, I seriously
0: doubt it. Adam Pancratz has been with us, adjunct professor, Sauter School of Business, University of British Columbia, talking about uh, the UK and Brexit and the pro- prorogation of government there. Adam, thanks so much for the time and insight. I'm sure we'll be watching this for a while. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don't you love the way sport brings people together? People who don't even normally watch tennis were into watching what was happening on the weekend on Saturday. This is what we need. It's amazing how in such a divisive world, look what we're talking about. Uh, anyway, of course, you know the story of uh, Bianca andrescu uh, first woman to win the U.S. Open, 19 years of age, uh, beats uh, the legendary Serena Williams. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist for your Hamilton spec. He is with us now. Scott, how are you?
2: I'm wonderful. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. Um, I-, I sat through perhaps the longest, uh, well, I, sh- I don't think I sat through the whole thing, but I certainly watched more uh, of a tennis match than I've ever seen before in my life.
2: Really? Yes. Even going back to the day
0: when Yeah, you know,
2: in the glory days of tennis, even then you watch more now. Well that's good. Yeah, yeah, you know.
0: Um but for me it was the whole it was the whole Canadian connection. It was the whole uh spirit of it all in and the whole story behind it. What what does it do? How does this happen? How do how does this bring us together the way it does?
2: Well, first of all, before I answer, were you like my kids who were saying, Wait a second, or at least my daughter, why why is it 15, 30, 40 deuce? What is that all about? <laughs> There's a lot of people who are are googling what the heck are the people who created tennis doing with the scoring
0: yeah i know it's like you know i can play volleyball and table tennis why does this have to be so difficult but why not 15
2: 30 45 i I know i know or something and there is a reason and i cannot tell you because i've got to look it up again because i I heard it once it is bonkers like it makes no sense logically but anyway
0: the great thing Um, is about sport no matter if you understand the scoring or not, you can always tell when it's going well and when it's not going well. That is the one good thing. But you, on that note, like not a word of a lie, my wife and I are sitting on the couch watching it yesterday, and she's texting her her tennis loving friend to decode what's happening as we're watching <laughs> it. That's how bad it was.
2: Well, it's like the Olympics when suddenly we're like we're all experts in the luge and skeleton. Yeah, and, exactly. And we're watching freestyle yes. skiing. Going, wow! Look, his knees came slightly no, apart. No, it's not it's like, like it's not like any that. of that
0: because at least we know how it works and how to get from top to bottom or whatever you need. This is like you said. It's like, well, how come they arrived at that point? How does that work? How you know? But yeah, I, I, I you know, it is uh, to your question
2: though. It, it, it's I've argued this many times. I have probably argued it on your show. I know I've said it on my show. If you go back and construct or or find the 10 moments that sort of universally or widely would be considered the 10 moments that Canadians were the most unified i think you could make a case that all 10 of those would be sports oh yeah now there's there may, i i'm going to be open to the fact that you could say well what about whatever well, I, you know the, the creation of canada okay i mean I, probably i wasn't or even keeping
0: there, it but, together perhaps
2: well even then but Quebec half of Quebec was ticked off so you're not right. even
0: really right. yeah. counting
2: them so cuz the referendum sure for a lot of canada you would have said yes go back look at the oh, ben johnson for whatever it was 24 hours that he was the champion yeah. every canadian was was paul henderson yep. donovan bailey winning mike weir the blue jays both times yep. um on and on and on sports is the one thing where hopefully and we'll get to it in a second hopefully there's nothing more than the fact that we're all really excited about something that's happened that we're all cheering for Sidney Crosby being a, probably the latest, greatest one before this. And so it's, it's not complicated, as you say, you know, somebody won and they're carrying our colors and we're excited and we were cheering. And so great. We can all just be happy and leave it at that. and We can all just feel good. Uh, sadly, unfortunately, that doesn't always happen, but it, boy, it when in those moments, when they do, it is really wonderful.
0: Because I think this is also surprising to a lot of Canadians. A lot of Canadians didn't find them, you know, didn't predict that they would be doing this this weekend, or that this would have been the story that it, that it was. Uh, you know, perhaps with, with other athletes we see, or, or other teams, other situations, Olympics, what have you, we see the momentum building. This was so quick. I mean, my goodness. Uh, last year rated, uh, you know, in the triple digits, and now, you know, she top five in the world. I mean, it's been an incredible thing to watch. I mean, even what happened with her in Toronto at the Rogers Cup, But you know, again had Serena Williams had the injury and such, and and, well, maybe that was a fluke, but man, that was, it was quite a performance.
2: I think there's something to what you're saying too, uh, because look, we knew the Blue Jays were getting better and better back in the days of the World Series, so that wasn't a surprise, although uh, you know, look at the moment that Joe Carter hit it. No one could have predicted yeah. that. And that yeah. was, you know, one of those surprise, joyous moments that yeah. no one saw. Um, Mike Weir when he won the Masters, Mike Weir was a good golfer at that point, but nobody, I don't think, said, oh, he's, he's going to win the Masters yeah. this week. Mm-hmm. Um, pick your others. Even in, you know, 2015, when everybody got excited about the Blue Jays, in July, they were mediocre and then they go out and make all those trades and suddenly they get red hot and suddenly everybody is now unexpectedly on the bandwagon so i think i think there may be something to what you're saying where it's you know you just get caught up in this moment and what will be interesting to see is now that she's won and now that all these people say oh i'm on the bianca bandwagon yeah well let's see let's let's see if next week or two weeks later when she's at the greater Wabash open, yeah. uh, and, you know, if anyone tunes in. Some will. More will than tuned in before. Mm-hmm. But it, it, there is an element of, wow, this is just a surprise, unexpected, joyous thing.
0: Plus, watching her in the way she handled herself yeah. uh, both before and after the match— um, and of course, even you know the now infamous apology for for uh, spoiling the show in New York and such. Um, she made everybody just good to feel good to be Canadian. I mean, it's like, can, how do we get back to Bianca? How do we get rid of the divisiveness and get more Bianca in Canada?
2: Two things. Uh, first one, your answer about what she did. The thing that was most impressive to me, more than beating Serena Williams, which was an impressive feat, more than anything else. Mm. That crowd, the way that arena is built, and if you were watching it, you saw some of those wide shots. Yeah. My wife made the comment when she came downstairs and started tuning in, a lot of people there. That's a big arena, and it is. It's a yeah. huge place, and it's built so the fans are right on top of you. And my biggest thing that amazed me was when, the, when Serena started making her comeback and the crowd was just going berserk, mm-hmm. and Bianca knew that there were like seven people in that arena cheering for her. Mm-hmm. That she was able to overcome that because the, the crowd was such an advantage to Serena Williams yeah. and that she didn't melt down.
0: Well at one point you even see her sticking her fingers in her ears. Yes and Which yeah. might have inspired the crowd to be even louder Yeah yeah
2: because they knew they were getting to her but that, that yeah. to me, the mental toughness part was was it. but here so how do we get more Bianca? Well, you know it's a tough question because a moment ago I said the beauty of sports is, that we keep it simple and it's not a divisive thing or it's not something that we inject politics into. Well, of course it's two thousand nineteen. Within five minutes of this thing ending, we had to start injecting politics into this thing and all kinds of other stuff. And things like, you know, immediately it was a well, you know, she's a an immigrant, so this now is a political thing about yeah, our immigration
0: exactly. situation yeah. in
2: Canada. not. Yeah. Well, can we not just enjoy this without (laughs) it turning into that? And then there was the the fight about, oh, well, this is the greatest Canadian sporting event of all time. And if you disagree, you are anti-woman or something. Well, we can all have our, I hate the fact that in 2019, even a great moment like this, you have to sort of filter out and block out the crap that can still come along with it. But if we can just keep it to what it was, Mm. man, it was a great afternoon.
0: What does it do for the game of tennis? What does it do for young people in the game?
2: I don't know. Um, You would think that it would inspire some Canadian girls. I mean, look, we we hear about the fact that the Raptors were going to get all these young kids to play basketball after winning the championship. So if that was a position that we hold to be true, then I guess you have to say that there are going to be people who weren't playing tennis who are going to go out and start playing. Um, The difficulty with that, I suppose, is the timing of this is that a huge part of Canada or basically all of Canada, maybe save for Vancouver, is shortly going to be in very cold conditions. So this would have been, for that kind of thing, this might have been better served had this happened in May. Right but I think there will be some people who will take up the game and there will certainly be some more people who will watch the game. I know that I, I, yesterday, I haven't watched men's tennis, honestly, in a long time. And I tuned in for a big part of yesterday's men's final, probably as a result of the Bianca final and just going, oh, you know what, let me let me tune in, let me take a look. And So we'll see. It's hard to imagine, Scott, that there won't be some kind of off. There was there was an increase in golf.
0: Yeah, with Tiger, interest man. when Tiger
2: Woods yeah. and Mike Weir. Um, I have no idea though. Did were more people in sprinting when Donovan Bailey won two gold medals? I don't know. So mm-hmm. it's really hard to say how or what effect this will have. But I can't imagine there will be none.
0: Uh, what about uh, the experience uh, inside uh, the stadium itself? Uh, as you As you mentioned, obviously the crowd was going nuts. The crowd was there to to see uh, Serena Williams get her her twenty fourth. Um, I, I guess they knew the history was going to be made either way. She would do that or or Bianca would win. What about the response of Americans and when Bianca won? Um, do you think from there, I, I mean, obviously during the heat of battle, they're screaming, they're yelling, they're making it very difficult for her to do her job. That was obvious. But then once it was, and, and the presentation was made your thoughts, the reason I'm saying this, I got an interesting, uh, email from a man named Martin. He said, Americans are not graceful losers, especially when it comes to sports. Sad to hear the U S pundit spinning it as a fluke, says Martin. Uh, although, And we also remember in a Raptors game what happened when a star player went down. So should we be talking about sportsmanship?
2: I thought that, look, the, the U.S. crowd was cheering for the American athlete. Do we not do that exact same thing yeah. here? I mean, when we mentioned Donovan Bailey a moment ago. Remember when Donovan Bailey, after the 96 Olympics, when Bob Costas and the others suddenly decided that the 100-meter winner was not the world's fastest man, but it was Michael Johnson, and they had that yeah. 150-meter showdown at Skydome?
0: Yep,
1: Remember that
2: one? And that was in Canada, and that was a Canadian athlete. How many people were cheering graciously for Michael Johnson to win that race? I mean, you cheer for your person. And so I have no problem with the fact that the crowd was cheering for Serena Williams because she was also, as you say, going for a record-tying 24th major. It made all the sense that you knew they were going to be cheering for her. And I didn't see the same lack of graciousness from the crowd afterwards. You know who I did see a lack of graciousness from, though, and I'll say this. Serena Williams, I thought, you know, maybe said some of the right words after in the press conference, but as soon as she says, I love Bianca, but that was my worst match of the tournament. Uh, you know, someone said to me the other day, anytime you say but after saying something, it yeah. means disregard everything I've said before. That was Serena Williams saying, she didn't beat me I lost that match. And to me, that was a graceless, tactless thing to say to someone who just won their first major. If you're Serena Williams, you've been around long enough. What you say at that point is, you know what? She was the better tennis player today. Plain and simple. I got my butt beaten. End of story. Good for her. And what, you know, I did that. That bothered me. That, That was the one part of this that I looked at and I said, no, 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 no. Don't try and turn this back into a story about you. This isn't about you today, but so the fans. Fans, I thought were fine. I didn't see the pundits that Martin is talking about, who were saying it was a fluke. Maybe it's a fluke. We'll see down the road. But I, I thought that the the person who was defeated should have done a much better job at being gracious in defeat.
0: And, you know, during the waning moments uh, of that match, boy, it was obvious who was still full of energy and who was tiring. Uh, and, I mean, that's just an age factor, a, a 19-year-old versus sure. uh, a, a 37-year-old. I mean, my goodness. It, it, its and, and that was obvious. That was obvious. It was well, taking her a longer time. T- you knew the longer yeah. that match went, the the harder it would be for Serena.
2: Yeah, in my column on Saturday, I pointed out that uh, Serena Williams won her first major I think it was 283 days before Bianca was born.
0: What does that say, yeah.
2: Yeah, so I mean, yes, the age thing. Now, could, if that match had gone to a third set, even with what you're saying, which is correct, but if you're Serena and you've got that energy from the crowd, could the crowd have carried her? Probably. Mm. I mean, again, it's, it's not disparaging the women's game. The women's game... Is a lot shorter when they get into marathon matches in the men's game. The men went for five hours yesterday. Yeah. Climb. Yeah. I think Serena Williams could have slugged it out with the energy of the crowd behind her for another set. I'm not sure that she was going to, you know, just be completely overwhelmed, especially with the emotional connection of the fans behind her. But you, you know what? The other side is Bianca. I don't remember the numbers. At 14 and 0, 15 and 0 in three set matches that she's had this season, she's undefeated. So there's something there too. So who knows where it would have gone, but we don't have to know where it would have gone.
0: Uh, you talked about timing. How, how good a timing is this for Bianca, considering she's just 19, she's just starting out, and obviously there's there, there's going to be a change at the top of tennis. I mean uh, the reigning queen will soon retire uh, or, or soon you know not as as strong as she once was. This is pretty good timing for Bianca it, providing she can keep doing this and can let's, she? I mean yeah, are, are we that to that. Are, are we to assume that because she's attained this success so early that wow, the rest is going to be a cakewalk?
2: No no and, and I've heard that from a number of people that oh look this is She's now started, and she's going to be the number one player in the world, and she's going to dominate women's tennis. She might. I'm not discounting that possibility. See, She has certainly shown that she has the capacity to do it. However, um, some people have quickly forgotten the name Eugenie Bouchard, who made it to the finals of Wimbledon yeah. and is now something like the 12,000th ranked tennis player in the world. She can't mm. beat you in a match right now. Mm. And Milo's Raonic was in the finals of Wimbledon, and he was supposed to dominate men's tennis and is injured now, he's had a bunch of injuries, but he's not a guy that we talk about in the upper echelon of men's tennis players, or the super upper echelon of men's tennis players anymore. They both didn't, didn't do as much, they, they were one match short of what Bianca did, but they were both right there and everybody said, these two are going to be the future of tennis, these two are going to be here for years and win the ton. They haven't done that, so I don't dispute or don't discount the idea that Bianca Andreescu could do that, but it's by no means a foregone conclusion. It's by no means a foregone Let's Let's talk about this again in a year, mm. and I expect her to still be here, but I expected Bouchard and Raonic to still be here. So let's talk in a year and see... Where she is. And I hope that we're talking about the fact that she's won two or three more of these, so obviously, but we can't guarantee it.
0: Obviously, uh, Canadian fans were made this weekend. What about the men's? Because it was funny. we're all watching this at my place on the on the uh, Saturday. And you know, my wife's sort of semi into it. So, I started watching, and wow, yeah, this is incredible. And then the Sunday rolls around, and the guys are playing. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go out and do the lawn. Um, You know, I I watched bits. I certainly saw the ending when it, you know, as you said, it was a marathon. Um, Do do as many Canadians uh, find the interest and go back the second day, uh, or are we just interested because there's a Canadian in it?
2: Sports is always the best, Scott, when you have an emotional connection. yeah, It's always best when you have someone who is a rooting interest. Um, you know if you if you turned on the NFL yes, I don't know if you have a favorite NFL team or not, but if you you're a NASCAR guy, if you have a favorite NASCAR driver and he's not in the race it's never as exciting as times when he's racing and so no, I don't think there were as many people who were as intrigued or as following it as closely. I certainly I can guarantee you there weren't a percentage of the people who were sitting chewing their fingernails at home in, in Canada and going yeah. to sports bars in Canada like there were on Saturday not, not even close. If there had been a, a Canadian guy in that one, if Raonic had somehow pulled himself together and been healthy, yeah, absolutely, there would have been. But that, you, you always are more engaged and more interested when you have a rooting interest.
0: I can't let you go. to away in on the uh, arena debate, real quick. Thirty seconds. Where are we going uh, with which this? Part? Where are we part? going? Where are we going with this?
2: Um, I wish I felt optimistic about it. I suspect if I had to guess, on Wednesday, they're going to strike a committee, a subcommittee to the downtown, which will lead to endless discussions and strategies. And based on Andrew Dressel's column today that Bill talked about on his show this morning, uh, I suspect you may as this thing drags out, see Michael Landlower say enough. I just I'm not waiting forever. And the report and the guy who designed, who wrote the report, who was at City Council last week, said you need an anchor tenant to do an arena.
0: Yeah.
2: And now you're going to be trying to figure out how do we put an arena somewhere where we don't have anyone to play in it. And the whole thing becomes this morass like we've seen with a bunch of other things. I really hope I'm wrong, but that's, that's the history.
0: Scott Radley's been with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. Make sure you're listening tonight and, of course, read his columns in the Hamilton Spectator where he is a sports columnist. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating article by, uh, by Alan Cross, music journalist. And th- these are this is another great article that Alan does where he just finds this little tidbit of something and then gives us an, and unravels a story which uh, maybe lots never put together. And uh, he's done it again. You can find this on our Global News website, on the CHML website as well. Yes, there's Woodstock 69, but what about that Toronto festival that helped break up the Beatles? Uh, that is the uh, title of Alan Cross's later, uh, latest, which you can find, of course, uh, on our website. Alan is with us now. It's great to have you here, Alan. Again, another great article, and, and I love how you just take these little wee nuggets of things and then delve into them and, and find out stories that, that maybe a lot of music fans uh, didn't know. First of all, how did a Toronto rock and roll revival festival that John Lennon decided to make an appearance at, how did that help or lead to or help fuel the breakup of the Beatles?
3: Oh, this is a long story. So let's let's begin with the summer of 1969. A couple of Toronto promoters, led by a guy named John Brower, decided that they wanted to do something called the Rock and Roll Revival. Something like this had been done in Detroit earlier in 1969. And they thought, well, why don't we try to do it here? And what their idea was, was to bring together all these pioneering rock and rollers. Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Gene Vincent and stage a rock and roll revival at Varsity Stadium on Bloor Street in, in Toronto. Now, it turns out that they were a couple of years too early for this, because if you remember back to the early 1970s, we got into a whole 50s revival thing.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
3: 71, 72, with American Graffiti and Happy Days and Sha Na Na and all that stuff. Well, they tried to do that in 1969, and at that time, nobody was buying. So they had got all these people to come up and perform, and tickets were not selling. All right? Well, they got Alice Cooper. This is before Alice Cooper became... Yeah. Uh, it was still the Alice... The band was Alice Cooper. Vincent Fernier, the singer, was still Vincent Furnier. He hadn't become Alice Cooper yet. So they got them. Brand new band. Nobody bought tickets. Then they went out and got the Doors at great expense. Doors a very hot band at the time. Mm-hmm. Nobody cared. Tickets were not selling. A guy by the name of Kim Fowley, a producer from California, was in Toronto to be the MC for this whole thing. And he's talking to Brown and he says, listen, this is not going well. You know what you should do? Get on the phone to Apple Music, Apple headquarters in London and see if John Lennon might be interested in coming out here to MC." Because, look, these are all his idols. Chuck yeah. Berry, Little Richard. and Gene. He would go crazy. So the show is scheduled for Saturday, September the 13th. On Friday, September the 12th, Brower gets on the phone to Apple Corps in London and says, My name is John Brower. I need to talk to John Lennon. It's an emergency. Well, John Lennon just happened to be in the office and heard the receptionist taking these names down, Gene Vincent, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, and got on the phone. And Barr says, "Uh, John, I I have a problem. We would love to have you up for this event. All your musical heroes are here. Can you come out to Toronto? We can't pay you, but we will provide some first-class airline tickets. And John says, fine, I'll I'll be there. Uh, I just have to get a band together, because he didn't have a band. Now, remember, John is still part of the Beatles at this time. Yeah, give Uh, us a quick
0: capsule. Where are the Beatles at this point?
3: August 20th, 1969, they had just wrapped up the final tracks for Abbey Road, which would be released in September. Uh, That was essentially the last time that they would all appear in the studio together. They had recorded material for Let It Be, but Let It Be wasn't ready. They'd do a little bit of touch-up on that between September of 1969 and early 1970. But essentially... John had just wrapped up recording with Abbey Road and was kind of in a bit of a limbo, so he decided that yeah, you know what, I'm going to bring Yoko. I'll find some friends. We'll come over and we'll play. So he called around quickly, found Eric
0: Clapton's play guitar. He found how did this go from an MC gig to all of a sudden now he wants to play?
3: Well, he didn't want to MC because Brower didn't hear him say, uh, "Yeah, let me just see if I can get a band together." <laughs> Hmm. So Lennon decided he had to, at the end of the phone call, and decided that he wanted to put together this band. So we got Eric Clapton, he got Claus Berman, who's a bass player, he got uh, Alan White, who would later be the drummer for Yes. And uh, they, they said, okay, well, we'll go over there and just jam on some songs. John wakes up the next morning. This is Saturday, September the 13th, the day of the show. He says, you know what? I don't want to go. Just send some flowers and say thanks for taking <laughs> Eric Clapton goes ballistic on him and says, no. You promised that you would play, you're going to go. Now, Lennon is is very, very insecure about this, not least of all because he's got a terrible heroin habit and going to Toronto would mean separating himself from his supply. But Eric Clapton shames him into getting on the plane, and they fly over. Meanwhile, Brower is trying to tell anybody that, listen, John Lennon's coming. But none of the radio stations, none of the TV stations, none of the TV stations believed him. Like, come on, John Lennon's coming? Right, yeah. It wasn't until wire reports came from Heathrow that Lennon had boarded a flight bound for Toronto that people began to believe him. And at that point is when people started buying tickets. So the show had already begun imagine this. The show had already <laughs> begun on September the 13th, when word got out that John Lennon would be performing that night. So there was a stampede to uh, Varsity Stadium, where people bought tickets and it immediately sold out. So in a couple of hours, 20,000 tickets, all gone. John Lennon and his entourage met at Pearson International Airport by the Vagabond's motorcycle gang. They had 40 bikes at the front, 40 bikes at the back, escorting this limo from the airport to Blur, uh, to Blur Street, Lennon gets there and sees Chuck Berry, Little Richard, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Gene Vincent, all in the flesh, and he freaks out. These are his his, yeah. his absolute idols, and he becomes extremely paranoid. Again, he's separated from his heroin supply, not feeling particularly uh, confident, and he has this terrible amount of stage fright. Remember that John Lennon had not played live with the Beatles. Since Candlestick Park in 1966. So, this was the first time that they were going to play, he was going to play a proper show in in three years. And he's panicking. Meanwhile, Kim Fowley is trying to calm him down. A little bit of cocaine never hurt. Uh, And then he goes out into the state, uh, in front of the crowd, and says, Look, John's here. We would like to make this a peaceful. Uh, groovy kind of thing for him. If you have a lighter or if you have matches, I want you to light them now and hold them in the air so we have a thousand, thousands of candles creating this wonderful vibe for John. Hmm. That, by the way, becomes the beginning of the, of the tradition of holding lighters in the air at rock concerts. Very cool. It began in Toronto. So Lennon comes out with uh, the Plastic Ono Band, and they go through about a 45-minute set. John's kind of, again, freaking out. He sings the song Cold Turkey as he's actually going through heroin withdrawal. Mm. Uh, Yoko spends 20 minutes of the set caterwauling from inside a bag on the stage. Didn't go over very well.
0: From inside so, a bag?
3: From inside of this big bag. It was mm. like a tent-type thing. Right. Uh, that didn't work. But by the time the show ended, Lennon was completely energized. The crowd got into it. He got into it. His band got into it. And that gave him all kinds of confidence, making him think, you know what? Maybe I don't need the Beatles. Hmm. Maybe maybe I can do this on my own. He had already done two albums with Yoko, but they were studio things. They weren't ever designed to you know, be live performance things. So he goes back to London after this is all over, and shortly thereafter, he sits down with the rest of the guys at Apple Tech College and says, right, mates, that's it, we're done, and everybody agrees. So while Paul McCartney is often the one credited or blamed for triggering the Beatles' breakup, he was the one that made it official in early 1970. It was John Lennon in the fall of 1969 who, after going to Toronto, playing the show and having such a good time, who went back and said, yeah, you know what, the Beatles are done, let's let's just end it, and everybody
0: agreed. How much of this do you think has to do with the loss or the ability not to perform anymore? Because as you mentioned, the Beatles became such an act that they couldn't even tour. They stopped touring for, for the last three years or so. Uh, couldn't get that response. Staging technology wasn't wasn't what it is today. So, uh, you know, the, the, these were largely scream fests. Do you think that for him, this festival was there's life beyond the Beatles and I can get back to doing what I, what I want to do or being on stage with my love is? and being able to manage it, as opposed to this out-of-control Beatlemania thing.
3: Well, remember, John hadn't played without Paul since 1957.
0: Yeah. yeah they, had
3: been, they had been a band for 12 years and lived in each other's pockets. And then George O'Reilly came along, and they were this unit that, that he had never performed since he was a kid, since he picked up a guitar, he had never performed outside that particular unit. So, and, and, of course, the Beatles were the biggest band in the world. How could he, one quarter of the biggest band in the world, ever possibly hope, you know, what, you know, what were his contributions? What were his abilities? How could he do this thing by himself? And it took this show in Toronto to prove to him that he could actually do it. And, uh, you know, again, it led to the, the dissolution of the band.
0: Uh, How was he received at that show? Because I remember the early days, Yoko Ono, uh, Beatle fans weren't, uh, you know, she wasn't a favorite of Beatle fans and such. Uh, uh, Did he do anything other than her stuff at that show?
3: Oh, they did. They they did a bunch of rock and roll classics. uh, Yeah,
0: all the stuff from the rock and roll album, that's where he got all that, right? It was uh, all all uh, the old favorites.
3: Uh, Yoko for for 20 minutes, that did not go over very well. Um, But he liked what he did well enough for there to be an album called Live Peace in Toronto. So there is a live album. And at that time, D.A. Pennebaker, the very, very famous documentarian who just died not too long ago at age 90-something, he was there with his film cameras. And the whole thing is documented. So Mm. not only is it on tape for an album, it's also on film. And, you know, this is somebody should really take all this, this material and make a documentary out of it because the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival of September 13th, 1969, is, you know, it wasn't as big or as flashy as, as, as Woodstock. It wasn't as dangerous and deadly as, as Altamont. But it was this thing that resulted in the breakup of the biggest band we'll ever see. So, and it, it also set John Lennon towards his solo career and if you want to really extrapolate things to his death so um, it's you can look on YouTube you can find a number of clips of this um and it's, it's worth watching. And it's I fas-
1: loved
0: it. It's fascinating because here you're saying it's 1969, and we're talking about a rock revival show, which is basically the glory days, the early days of rock and roll. So that music's probably only like 10 years old by that time, maybe 15 at the absolute tops.
3: Well, uh, uh, it, it, 12 actually.
0: So when you think about it, those guys weren't cool yet they were well they were beyond cool they were out of date and sort of like watching old people compared to the stars of the day and then all of a sudden john lennon is with this audience how did that change the way we perceive these performers because as you said right after that the 70s were it was was a whole 50s revival thing
3: i I think that's that's a really good question and it certainly did a lot in the eyes of the rest of the world for these artists to receive john lennon's blessing remember if you were a beatles fan Especially a late period Beatles fan, you're what, fifteen, sixteen years old? Uh all these other rock and roll performers from the nineteen fifties, those are your parents' bands.
0: Exactly. Or your older
3: brother's bands. Yeah. So you're here with John giving these people uh props by not only appearing with him, but by playing some of the music from that era. And then later of course recording, recording the rock and roll album. So it it was a really big deal and, and I, that's a that's a good question. I, I would probably want to go and talk to somebody like George Lucas, to say, George, you know, when you went and you did something like American Graffiti, were you thinking of the rock and roll revival of 69?
0: It's fascinating because, again, it was just such a short period. And if you look at that now, that would be like having a band from 2000, a a revival festival with a bunch of bands from 2009.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I know,
2: it's It it just seems
0: so out of place.
3: But, you know, rock and roll was young back then. So uh, this, this is, this is the way it, it, it worked out.
0: I remember being a, a teenager in the 70s and going to a bazillion of these old rock and roll shows, and I loved going to see the Chuck Berry's, Fats Dominoes, Gene Vincent's, uh, uh, not Gene Vincent, um, Lou Christie's, uh, a lot of the old doo-wop bands. Uh, for a young kid, for some reason, that music really stuck with me. Interesting. And now my kids listen to all of that.
3: Yeah, well, that's the... That's the beauty of the internet and always on internet uh, music streaming services. You can get anything you want from any era at any time. Yeah. Kids don't really care. It's, it's, is it a good song? That's all they care about. They don't care about where, who's doing it, what era it's from. Just, is this a good song?
0: And back in the day, it was, could I find one of those old songs, but could I find it with good quality sound? Something that yeah. was, you know, now everything's remastered and sounds better than it did the day of.
3: Well, I'm actually going to London later this week, or later this month. I'm going there on the 25th, because um, Abbey Road, the album, is being re- uh, reissued mm. on the uh, occasion of its 50th anniversary, which will be Friday the 27th. On the 26th, there is going to be a listening session for the redone version of uh, Abbey Road. It's been remastered, remixed by Giles Martin, the son of George Martin, I've heard bits and pieces of it. It's it's absolutely stunning because that record, when it was issued back in the late sixties, a lot of people were still playing records on portable mm. turntables uh, in mono, yep. and you had to mix a record so that you these these cheap plastic tone arms wouldn't jump out of the grooves on these turntables. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now they've brought everything up to twenty first century standards. I've heard some mixes. And it is astounding how much better these records sell, or records sound, or these songs sound. And uh,
0: when I go to London, I'm going to a listening session in Studio 2. At Abbey Road, that is haunting, Alan. I'm getting I, shivers up my spine just thinking about that.
3: I, it's this is this is like Christmas and New Year's and Super Bowl all for me. <laughs>
0: yeah, I can imagine. Uh, if they had all survived, lived, would there would they reunite? Because remember, there was so much of that talk about for years until John Lennon's death. What are your thoughts on when people ask you that?
3: Well, there's a the story that it almost happened on Saturday Night Live when they offered
0: $1,300. Yeah. And they almost showed
3: up and did it. Everybody was in New York, and they, they almost went to the studio to do it. I, I, I don't think they, they would have, simply because of the business interests involved. Towards the end, three Beatles had one manager, Paul had another. Uh, there were lots of anim- there's lots of animosity over royalties, uh, over publishing, mm. over creative control, over a lot of different things. I don't think it would have ever happened. A lot of money was offered. None of them needed the money, and I'm glad they didn't because we have those seven glorious years from 1963 to 1970, where so much happened so quickly, uh, and music that will live forever. That. I'm glad they they didn't bother getting back together because they would have just tainted the legend and the myth.
0: Hmm. Alan Cross has been with us, music journalist. The latest column, yes, there's Woodstock 69, but what about that Toronto festival that helped break up the Beatles? Uh, And you can find it on the global uh, site. Another great uh, piece, Alan. Thanks so much for the time.